Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So we are, Chronological Gospels began back two years ago, uh, meshing together the Gospels, trying to put them in chronological order. It's a great impossibility to get it all to line up just as uh, the four Gospels might lay out because each Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had a different intended audience in mind as they were writing the gospel. In fact, one example of this is Luke, where we'll begin today. He was writing to a man named Theophilus, and he said in Luke 1, 3 and 4, it seemed good to me also. So he's he's saying it seemed good to me also, like the other gospel writers. It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. So Luke, we know that he was inspired to write to an individual. Uh, Theophilus means lover of God, and so someone that he was connected with, and there's theories about how they were connected, but we can't know those theories. All we know is that Luke wrote not only the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus, but also the book of Acts to him as well as a follow-up, a part two. Uh, It was such a good book. They had to come out with an extended volume, and the next uh, book in the series, I wish he would have written more for us, but we did get two books out of Luke. And again, he had this intended purpose. He tells us to write an orderly account that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. So Theophilus already knew about Christ, probably at this point a believer being instructed in the faith, but he wanted to put it together as an orderly account. And we have been in this section in Luke's Gospel that began several chapters ago in chapter 14 where the Lord sat down uh, in a house of a Pharisee to have dinner on the Sabbath day. And in that house, there was a man who had droopsy. The Bible tells us that the Pharisees were, they were on the prowl again. Jesus, the Sabbath day and sick people, they kind of had this connection where the enemies of Christ, which were the Pharisees, where Jesus was invited to have this dinner and perhaps a trap for him, the enemies of Christ saw healing on the Sabbath day as work and and told the people flat out that you have six days where you can go to the doctor, but don't do it on a Sunday. God forbid that anything major happens to you for the Orthodox Jews still in Israel on a Sunday, because they were told, according to their traditions, not according to the Word of God, that they could do, they could preserve life. You cut your arm off, they could put a tourniquet on it, but don't you dare stitch the thing up until Monday or until Sunday for them, the Sabbath being on a Saturday. And Jesus, just the hypocrisy, he 
He, in chapter 14, talked them down, healed the man, sent the man away. The Bible tells us that, I believe, because he wanted to get him out of the target of the Pharisees. If you recall, when Jesus raised up Lazarus from the dead, not only did they want to put Jesus to death, but they wanted to put Lazarus to death as well because you had a living, walking testimony of the power of God in a person's life. And they're thinking, let's get rid of him. So chapter 14, Jesus dealt with the Pharisees there, but many believe that this whole day continued from chapter 14 until we get into our lesson today in chapter 18 and when Jesus is on the move again. But also we have this um, connection, as we'll discover today, where the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin to... um, fit very well together. That's why we'll go to the Gospel of Mark as well. So Jesus has been teaching parables. He's been teaching the people. He's been healing the sick. He's been battling against the enemies of the cross, although they didn't have that term of the cross at that time. And it brings us to chapter 18, where we will begin by looking at verses 1 through 14, and we'll look at two different situations. I titled today's message, Perseverance, Pride, and Praise. We want the perseverance, we want the praise, we do not want the pride, but pride is dealt with in the middle of these two things. And Luke actually addresses um, what we will look at from Mark's gospel when the children came to be blessed by Jesus. But we're going to take it from Mark's gospel. And I think it gives us just a little different information how we've been putting the chronological gospels together when three, two, or all four of the gospel writers um, come and converge on a single story. Then I'll choose which one I'll teach from for that day. And so that gets us back. We've been in Luke for a couple of months, so it gets us back to another gospel today. I'm going to finish in Mark's gospel. So today we are looking at perseverance in prayer from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, pride versus humility, Luke 18, 9 through 14, and praising the little children, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to go ahead and just read the context. Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 of our first point, perseverance in prayer. And he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was a certain city, a judge, who did not, in that certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards He said within himself, though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she will weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge says. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them, I tell you, that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And so we begin with a parable. 
And this is kind of unique. In, there are several parables in the Gospels. And here we have in this chapter two parables where Jesus announces uh, the purpose of the parable. A lot of times the Bible will tell us, and he spoke a parable to them, and then it goes right into the parable, and we have to try to figure out the purpose of the parable. This one we don't have to figure out. He tells us the purpose of this parable that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And that's kind of the thing with parables that usually there's just one specific purpose that the Lord had in mind when he spoke the parable. A lot of times we like to like break it down and put it into uh, big charts and put it into sections and and make it so confusing, confusing we have no idea what the Lord was trying to get across. He's speaking to the people in parables because many of them were no longer being attentive or believing in him. So he began to speak in parables. In Luke 10:8, it tells us they've been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but the rest given in parables, seeing that they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. So there are spiritual truths in every single parable that the Lord has given. For the church, Jesus said, it's for us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. For the rest of the world, those who do not believe, it's just a good story. And maybe it has a good purpose behind it. But here, it's for the church. He tells us that we would not lose heart when we pray. Have you ever lost heart when praying? I think we all have probably at one time or another, and yet Jesus gives us this parable to encourage us that we should not lose heart, that we should pray always for those needs that we have. He speaks of this certain judge that we've read the text already. He was a man that was described that he did not fear God, he did not regard man, but there was a widow, and she had some kind of adversary. Somebody had wronged her, and the widow was looking for justice. And the judge at first said, you know, I don't even want to hear the case. And maybe the second day and the third day and the next week and the next month, he's saying, I still I don't want to. And we don't know how long and how persistent she was, but she kept showing up. She, so much so that the judge himself says, even though I don't fear God, nor do I regard man, I'm going to deal with this woman just to get her off my back. I'm tired of hearing about this. I will revenge her, or avenge her, verse 5, lest by her continual coming she will weary me. So he had no fear in God. Having a fear in God helps us in our conduct in this world. Today, in our society and throughout the world, we are seeing in reality that there are a number of people that have no fear of God. They do not worry about any coming judgment. They've been taught in their school systems, especially here in the United States and in the Western societies like Europe, uh, that are found in Europe, they've been taught that we were not created in the beginning. God did not create the heavens and the earth. We just happened by some big explosion, some big bang, that they would say that uh, we are like the animals. There's nothing special than us. 
more so than the animals, other than we have the ability to think and to reason. And uh, when you die, you just die, and that's the end of it. And we live in a world that now does not fear God, and we see the conduct of that where people are doing horrific things from killing a teenager, um, trying to protect a friend that was being tossed in a trash can, and having, I think, 17 youth come around him, kick and stomp on him so severely that his life was taken from him, to pushing down a Jewish man a few weeks ago in Los Angeles when they were protesting in favor of Hamas. And here's the bizarre thing, that the denial of truth of what happened in Israel on October 7th with the beheading of babies, the raping of women, and uh, kidnapping, and 240 hostages, a couple of those have been discovered. Some um, have been discovered dead, but some have been retrieved. But for the most part, still hostages and saying, yeah, but, you know, it's because of what Israel did. That's why they were so violent in their rage. But we live in a country where we see a similar violence taking place. People are violent. They're rage. They have no fear of God and they have no respect of humanity around them. It's all lost. It's as if they were not created, but we know that they were. The Bible teaches us in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It teaches us to have a right relationship with God. We also need to have right relationships with one another. And we think about this judge and this widow that kept coming. It reminded me of Delilah. Samson had this secret, as we know, in the book of Judges, that he was a man that his mother raised him to be a Nazarite all the days of his life. And the three parts of a Nazarite vow was that he was never to have anything from the vine, so no grapes, no grape juice, no wine. He was never to touch the dead, and he was never to cut his hair. Well, if you read the account of Samson, he blew the wine thing and he blew the touching of the dead because there's a lot of people died by his hand. So he was touching the dead all the time. Um, But specifically, um, you can go back to when he had killed a lion and came back and discovered that there was a honey comb bees working and built a honeycomb in the lion and so he went in that dead carcass to get honey and so we know that he blew the first two and he still had his strength but when Delilah the Bible tells us in Judges 16 16 and 17 when she pestered him daily with her words pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death he told her all that was in his heart She was pressing him on what gives you your great strength. And he played around with her for a little while and then finally revealed that his hair had never been cut and that hair was cut and he thought he would avenge the Pharisees like he had done before, but he became their captive at that moment. 
this judge didn't help the widow because it was the right thing to do. He was just tired of hearing from her. Yet Jesus takes this. Now this is how things can happen with unrighteous people in our world. And he says, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God, God who is righteous, God who is true, God who is holy, avenge his own elect and cry out, those who cry out to him day and night, though he bears with them long, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So perseverance, persistence of the widow like that in our prayers as we come to the Lord. We need to know that God will act in our behalf righteously. We need to put our hope, our trust in him always. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but as some count slackness, but is not, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think sometimes we do not suffer long, we do not persevere, we do not persist in our prayers. One of the great Bible teachers of old, R.E. Torrey, said, "O oh, men and women, pray through, pray through." Do not just begin to pray and pray a little while and throw up your hands and quit, but pray and pray and pray until God bends the heavens and comes down. Have you ever prayed like that until God bends the heavens? Sometimes we get in those places of prayer and we don't feel that God is bending the heaven. We don't feel that God is working. We don't feel that God is moving in our behalf, and we give up. Sometimes we may think that the Lord is saying no when the Lord is actually just telling us to wait. It's so important that the Bible tells us in Psalm 27, 13, and 14, I would have lost heart unless I had believed, so faith is important, I would have lost heart if I hadn't believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. And so a way that we find endurance in our prayer is to wait on the Lord. Continue to put our faith in Jesus. Jesus gave this parable to encourage believers, his own elect, not to lose heart as they wait the coming of the kingdom of God, knowing that God will avenge us. God will do what's right. There is an adversary in this world. I don't know what, who the widow's adversary was, and I don't know the issues that maybe you have a personal adversary. Maybe you have um, just the conditions of this life as being very difficult toward you. But we know over all of this in this world, there is an adversary, Satan, that tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11, that we should be sober, we should be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, 
and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And do we not want the Lord to work in our life in such a way that he perfects us, he's establishing us, strengthening us, settling us in our faith? I think about that settling in the faith. When I was 21 years old, I was unsettled as far as my faith was concerned. I was just not sure if the Lord had saved me or not. And it didn't matter that I went forward when I was seven years old, was baptized, received communion. It didn't matter at the beginning of 21. That's why I know I can track these dates that I went forward again. I asked the Lord to come into my heart. And uh, at the time, my dad, the pastor, got mad at me for even doing something like that in front of the church. He said, you should have done this privately. And it's like, but I, the Lord's dealing with me. And this is a public thing I need to do. And uh, dad got mad, so I didn't go into it with him. But that personal struggle stayed with me for a couple of years. Until the Lord came. And it was the Lord who settled the issue in my heart. But here's the thing. During the two years, it's like, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I didn't stop serving the Lord. I had questions, but I continued to involve myself in church and in ministry. And the Lord continued to use me while he was settling the issue in my heart and the settlement of the issue was that he let me know on a Sunday morning between Sunday school and church that he had me all the way back when I was seven years old. I was the one that was a little unsettled in the issue. So the Lord is the one who perfects, establishes, strengthens, and settles when we have persistence and learn to wait on the Lord. So the perseverance of our prayers reveals the attitude of our hearts. And here we have the Lord speaking about pride versus humility in verses 9 through 14. Again, the context. These are so short. I'll read the whole context. It tells us also, he spoke this parable to them who trusted in themselves. So again, he gives us the reason for the parable. This doesn't always happen. But here in these two, Luke writes the reason for us. He spoke this parable to them, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So the parable, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I find that uh, very interesting wording. He was praying with himself. It was like a laborer when I was a brick mason One day he announced to the crew, and he knew I was a pastor at the time, and he announced to the crew, he says, I don't have our family pray to God when we sit down at the family meal. I have them thank me. I'm the one who brought the food in. He was praying to himself, all right. I hope he has discovered since that time that it's not about him. So the Pharisee stood, he prayed within himself, he thanked God that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so here, another parable. But this one, again, he tells us, what was behind the parable? This is for those who they trust in themselves. They don't trust in God. They think they're right. They think they're good. They think they're righteous. And they actually despise others in the process. And yet this man comes and he's praying at the temple before the Lord. So we have in Psalm 14.3, and it's repeated two more times in the New Testament, or actually one more time in the Psalms and once in the New Testament. So Psalm 14.3, it says, They have all turned aside, they have all together become corrupt. There is none that does good, no, not one. It's here in Psalm 14.3, Psalm 53.3, and Romans 3.12. There is none that does good, no, not one. And the problem is when there are those who pray to themselves that they believe that they are righteous, I see it this way, that they feel that they're righteous because they look at what other people do. Even this man, as he's praying, he's comparing himself to others. I'm not an extortioner, and maybe this is totally true. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. Now, we have to get this tax collector thing out of the way. In Israel, tax collectors were normally Jewish men collecting taxes for uh, the Roman government, for a foreign government. And so they were considered traitors. They were the low of the low. And it could be true that he was none of those things. But the problem is, when humans define their goodness, they do it by comparing themselves to others. When God speaks about doing good, he's comparing our sinfulness with his sinlessness, our wickedness with his righteousness, our injustice with his justice. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a just man on the earth that does good and does not sin. In Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This man did not realize his sinful condition. But on the other hand, we have the tax collector who realized that he was a sinner and he needed the Lord's touch in his life. If you look through the Pharisee's prayer, you'll discover that there are five personal pronouns. Five times he said, I, 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 I. That's all it was. And I think it was right. He prayed with himself. I don't think it went any further than himself. He was just praying with himself, made himself feel good, dropped a coin in the offering and walked away. And yet he was not justified before God. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. J.C. Ryle wrote, nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven 
and prevent him from seeing Christ as pride. So as long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. But the tax collector, there are several steps that he took that makes him really stand out in this parable. It really shows us that he did not trust in himself. He did not trust in his own righteousness, but he was putting his trust in the Lord. First, he stood afar off. Second, he kept his eyes low. Third, he beat his breast. And fourth, he cried out to the Lord to be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, this reminds me, I've never seen it before in my life and haven't seen it since, but several years ago at a seniors pastors conference out in California, um, we were having communion and several of the men had went forward. I don't know. It, it, it was a time of communion and waiting upon the Lord. And uh, we gave the whole service over to that. There was no teaching. Uh, that particular, they learned. This is the nature of people. They learned, and even pastors. Um, they would have like a four-day conference at 7 p.m. You have the big guns teaching always the you know, the main pastor on that day slated to teach. But they learned that if they did a waiting upon the Lord after the main teaching, like at 9 o'clock, half the people left. Sometimes I was one of them. Sometimes I was wiped out. And I didn't want, I just, you know, you did church all day. I already heard five sermons. Come on. And uh, they learned and they started doing it at the seven o'clock hour. It's like, we're not going to teach. We're just going to wait on the Lord. That way you guys have to stay. And it worked. But I watched as one of the pastors, as he was praying, he was beating his breast. And I'm sure he had this parable in mind as he prepared his heart to receive communion that day. I've never seen anybody do that before. But this is how Jesus described this man. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And James 4, 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 5, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. That was 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. D.L. Moody, the fam famous evangelist from Chicago, he said, spread out your petition before God and then say, thy will, not mine, be done. The sweetest lesson that I've ever learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. And I think sometimes we pray trying to convince the Lord, my will, not thine. And we need to reverse that. Psalm 118, 8 and 9 says, It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So in our fellow man, in the government, we could say, just trust in the Lord. That's the good thing to do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. As I said, the Pharisee came down and prayed, 
and use the personal pronoun I, the letter I, five times. But I see another letter that was with the tax collector. And in that, it tells us in verse 14, he who humbles himself within the word humble is the letter U. That if we are willing to humble ourselves, make it about God, not about I, make it about God, then we, like this tax collector, will find that peace that we're seeking before the Lord. May we solely trust in the Lord for our justification. And one last point takes us over to Mark's gospel. It's also found in Matthew 19, 13 through 15, Luke 18, 15 through 17. But we've been in Luke for so long, I wanted to go over to Mark. And Mark actually said something that helped me get a little greater understanding. So when you look in your Bible and you see that there's an account that's repeated in another gospel, I would encourage you to read the other accounts. You're going to get a little different view. And here's Mark's little different view. Let's go ahead and read it first. Get the context. Mark 10, 13 through 16, it says, Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, said to his disciples, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. And he took them up in his arms. He put his hands on them and blessed them. So the thing that stood out in Mark's gospel, I'll just tell you up front, is that I always saw the children coming to Jesus in my mind. And I don't know, sometimes you, you know, you've been around church your whole life and you read these accounts over and over again and you kind of, your mind jumps to conclusions that perhaps aren't in the scripture. And I kind of, in my mind, had seen the disciples pushing the kids away, saying, get away, leave the, leave the master alone. He's a busy man. Little kitties, go over to Sunday school again. Um, but it, Mark tells us that they were rebuking those who brought the children. So maybe the parents, the friends, the family members, those who had a heart for children, bringing the children to Jesus and the disciples are attacking people with a heart like that. Come on, don't you guys know? Jesus doesn't have time for the little children. He's a busy man. He's trying to make his way to Jerusalem. He's about to announce himself as king. We got this all figured out. We're going to be his 12 bodyguards for now. But one day... We're going to be in a higher position. So we're going to begin to start con control you grandparents, you, you parents, you relatives, you friends. They desired that Jesus would touch the children. That's what they desired. Now here's the thing. In Mark's gospel, we read this and we go back one chapter. Jesus taught them. In Mark 9:37, he's teaching his disciples, whoever receives one of these little children 
in my name receives me. So the disciples had been arguing in Mark chapter 9 about who is the greatest. And Jesus pulled the little child up, sat him on the lap and said, you want to know who the greatest is? Right here. You receive a little child in my name, you're going to be great. And here are the little children. One chapter later, they show up and they're saying, get the kids away from Jesus. He's, he doesn't have time. But Jesus saw it. He was greatly displeased. Apparently, the disciples took it on themselves to manage the Lord's affairs. They were his public relations specialists. And they failed to understand the value of a true child of God in the kingdom of God. It says that he was greatly displeased. It's a Greek word that can mean greatly afflicted, to become indignant. And so to be moved with indignation, that's almost like a wrath word. He's, re he's ready to attack now. Jesus' indignation meant that he was angry. He, he was more than just being annoyed with his disciples. He's probably thinking, come on, guys, it's been three years. Aren't you going to get it? The innocence of a child, the trust that they have, the softness of their heart, they reveal emotion. If they're happy, they're smiling. If they're sad, they're crying. And everybody knows it. When children express emotion, you know what's going on in their lives. You can see it. And trusting in the things of God, children are more capable, according to Jesus, than adults to believe in the simplicity of the gospel. And Jesus gave his disciples two commandments. Let the little children come to me. And number two, do not forbid them. Let them come. Do not forbid them. And as parents, and here in the church, we need to be involved with teaching the children. Parents, in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, it says, These words which I commanded you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them, of the commandments, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Uh, teach them diligently. We're to be actively doing these things. Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength, his wonderful works, which he has done. We're not to hide the word of God from our children. God's word can lead a child to salvation. He did it for me when I was at a young age of seven years old. For many of you, maybe coming to faith as a child. We know Timothy came to faith in 2 Timothy 3.15. Though not knowing of Christ early on, he had a godly mother, a godly grandmother, Lois and Eunice. But it says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from childhood you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You put the word of God into your children and it is able to make them wise to salvation. It gives them the capability of understanding how they might be saved. There's a survey that's been going out recently. And this is 
just an update of things that we've known for a long time. But this is the International Bible Society indicating that 83% of Christians, and this is a survey in America. It's not talking about what's happening out in other parts of the world. This is America. I believe they had, I don't know, I read too many surveys. I was going to say 400 people in this survey, but I'm not sure if that's correct. I did read a survey this week with 400 people that were surveyed, but I didn't put it in my notes, so I can't say that. 83% of Christians make their first commitment of Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14. Barna Research Group indicates that American children ages 5 to 13 have a 32% probability of accepting Christ, but youth ages 14 to 18, only 14%. And if you're over 19, just 6%. So if we're looking statistically of having an effective ministry, what age group should we be targeting? Those kids. They even have come to call this the 414 window. We have this window of opportunity that the most impactful ministry could take place as far as people coming to faith in Jesus Christ in those ages. Children are great examples of how it is to come to Christ. And we know as the older you get, and I think it's even worse today with all the technology that we have, um, <laughs> there's so much information out there today that people have like a half inch deep of knowledge, but no depth of understanding. They just have a lot of things rattling around their brain, but they have no understanding. We see it right now in our own nation and uh, right now, Israel and the Palestinian Hamas war taking place is a big deal. Um, and you just keep going back. Watch your social media. It's like every month you have a different thing that you're fighting for. And you have no idea what you're fighting for, but everybody else is doing it. So I better put the flag up. I better put the uh, emoji up. I better put the right color. Better have the right words. Better do this. Better do that. And there's just fighting without knowledge. But we are to come as little children. Jesus said, I say to you in verse 15, whoever does not receive the whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will by no means enter in it. And he took them up and he blessed them. So first of all, we all come to Christ in the same way. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, that simple faith of a child. It's as Peter said in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, he uses the word as newborn babes, so it gets us back to the children. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. thereby. So it's not bad for Christians to say, I want my bottle, when you're drinking in the word of God. And I think sometimes... We need to get beyond the newborn babe and the pure milk of God's word in the sense of getting some meat in there too. But I want us to notice the blessing. He blessed them. Catalegeo, it's only found here, a Greek word that is translated as blessed. It also can be translated as praise. And thus, I needed another P for my sermon title, Perseverance, Pride, and Praise comes from the Greek word katalageo, to praise, to celebrate with praise, to call down a blessing. 
So Jesus is celebrating the children. He's blessing them. He's calling down a blessing upon them. He's praising them. And I'm at times blown away by the simple things that children do when they're worshiping the Lord. Their hearts are so naturally soft toward the Lord. It's easy for them to find faith in Christ. As we get older, we carry baggage. That's what I was about to say earlier. got maybe distracted a little bit, but we have so much baggage. I think that's why the scale goes down from 414 to 14 to 19, 19 to whatever age, only 6% coming to faith. It's because we get to that point of so much baggage, our hearts get so hard that we can't come to the Lord in the simplicity of trusting in him that he has what we need. So those with a childlike faith come to Jesus in humility and trust. So today we've seen, this is lesson 67 in our chronological gospels. I titled this Perseverance, Pride, and Praise. We want the first and last, the perseverance and the pride. Uh, I said it wrong. Perseverance and the praise, not the pride. We want perseverance in our prayers, knowing that perseverance in prayers reveals the attitude of our heart. We want humility, not pride, in that we trust in the Lord for our justification, and we want that praise in coming to the Lord in a childlike faith. And Father, we thank you for your word, for teaching us today. And Lord, I pray for our children. Lord, in 30 plus years of doing ministry here at the church. And we're a small church, but we've seen our children's ministry uh, be so large at times we're thinking we need a little more room for them. That is not the case right now, Lord. And uh, I just want to pray for those 4 to 14, that age gap that is largely missing now in this church. Father, would you help us to reach that age? I know we have people in this church who have heart for children to want to minister to them, to teach them of the love of Christ. And I'm thankful, Lord, that we have teens that are being taught your word this morning. But Lord, I just pray for the little children. Help it that we're not pushing them away, Lord. Help us to be able to invite them, to bring them to... um, open not only doors to serve the children in this place, but to see that children are giving their heart to you once again. So we pray for that, Lord. We we look around and we see the need right here. And forgive us, Lord, if we've been the ones who have failed in this area, like your disciples did when Mark talked about this. Forgive us, Lord, if we've failed to persist in our prayers. Just give us courage, Lord. Maybe it's a prayer that we haven't prayed in a while, but We have felt no answer from you yet, and today we pick up that prayer once again and begin to ask. And Lord, forgive us if we've had pride in our heart. Maybe the problems we've been praying and to ourselves, we've been dependent on ourselves and not on you. Maybe today we need to be those beating our breast, saying, Father, forgive me, I am a sinner. And we pray, Lord, your blessing be upon us and that your peace and your grace always shine brightly. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless.